Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at AntiochChurch.org. Thanks for listening. Hear these words from Isaiah 58. Cry aloud, shout, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people, my church, their rebellion. Tell my people what's wrong with their lives. They seek me daily and delight to know my ways. They ask me, what's the right thing to do? They act like righteous people that would never abandon the word of God. Why have we fasted, they say, and you haven't seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you haven't noticed? Why aren't you impressed? Here's the word of the Lord. Here's why. It's because you are fasting to please yourselves. You fast when you argue and fight over small things. You fast, but you attack those who don't think and act like you. This kind of fasting will never get you anywhere with me. You go through the motions, bowing your heads like plants bending in the wind, dressed in clothes for mourning. Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? This is the kind of fast I'm after. To break the chains of injustice, lighten the burdens, free the oppressed, cancel the debt, share your food with the hungry, give shelter to the homeless, clothe those who need it. Don't turn away from your own flesh and blood. They are your family. Then your light will break forth like the dawn. Your healing will quickly appear. Your righteousness will go before you and the glory of God will go behind you. You will call and God will answer. You will cry for help and God will say, here I am. Remove the heavy burden of oppression. Do away with the gossip and the finger pointing. Feed the hungry. Help those in trouble. Then your light will shine out from the darkness. Your shadow lives will be bathed in the sun and God will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in the emptiest of places, restoring your strength. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Restore, renovate, rebuild the broken in your community. Raise up the age-old foundations and you will be called repairer of the broken systems of safety and protection and restore of home and community. People of God, lift up your voices and cry aloud. Lift up your voice like a trumpet in
Well, good morning, Antioch. So glad that you're joining us here today for this uh, live conversation. 
that song was by a group called Urban Doxology out of uh, Richmond, Virginia. And uh, they are connected to an organization called Airbond, who our guest today uh, works closely with. So I'm excited for you uh, to get to meet her in just a little bit. Um, before we dive in uh, to, the, to the meat of our time together today, I want to take a few moments just to do some updates and announcements uh, for our church. Um, the first has to do with our building. As you know, since we started Antioch in 2006, uh, we've been what we've called a tabernacle church, setting up and tearing down for worship in rented spaces uh, Sunday after Sunday. And ever since I took over as lead pastor just over two years ago, one of my priorities has been uh, to help us get into a, a place to call our own. And so, uh, as you know, uh, a couple months ago, God opened the door for us to purchase the old Grace Baptist building. Uh, across the street from Bend High at Six and Clay, and uh, we had we got a an amazing deal, and uh, our elders and leaders are in 100% agreement that this. Uh, is the next step that God has for us as a church. And so um, our goal is over the course of the summer to uh, be remodeling this space. And whenever it is that the world reopens and we're able to gather again together as a family, uh, we're excited to uh, open up in the new space at Six and Clay. And so uh, at this point, the interior demolition is uh, almost completely done and construction will begin in the next uh, week or two. And uh, we are so excited for this new home that God's given us. It will allow us to maximize our ministry uh, seven days a week, as well as help us create a space that's going to be much more conducive uh, to worship and community. So again, we don't know exactly when or how or what reopening will look like, but we are plugging away and uh, got a great team of designers and architects and contractors, uh, both from inside the church and outside that are working together and uh, can't wait for us to be together again one way or another. So just wanted to keep you posted. Uh, on that note, let me give you a quick update on reopening, as it were. Although the church has never shut down, we obviously have had to restructure. And uh, as you know, Central Oregon, uh, Deschutes County is now in phase two. And so our staff and elders have been prayerfully discerning uh, what the best move is for us in terms of next steps towards regathering. And here's what we've decided. Um, rather than trying to get all of us together um, in one place on a regular basis anytime soon, um, our invitation is that to uh, invite the whole church uh, to begin gathering together in homes on Sunday mornings in what we might call house churches. And the idea is that we're trying to honor the directives of our state and county leaders, but also begin to safely and responsibly uh, start gathering as the Church of Jesus. And so um, the idea of a house church is really simple. It's a small gathering, however many people uh, would fit comfortably in your living room, and joining together every Sunday morning to uh, pray, to sing, to study the scriptures, to learn and to pray, and to grow together on Sunday mornings. 
things. And so um, our staff meeting will be providing a kind of a variation on what we've been doing the last couple months, um, a slight twist to what we're calling now, uh, rather than a digital liturgy, we'll be offering a living room liturgy that will serve your house church uh, as a way to worship and learn and connect together. And so um, here's what I think is really cool about this. Ever since the beginning of Christianity, followers of Jesus have often used the home as the primary place of worship and fellowship. And so we aren't viewing this next step as some sort of lame, unfortunate plan B, but I'm actually really excited about the opportunities it creates for us to uh, practice uh, church in a way um, that has been so central to the faith that we've received for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so, in fact, uh, at my church in Corvallis, we regularly would take seasons, often a summer, and say, rather than having our kind of typical Sunday worship service, we're going to decentralize and we're going to put everybody into house churches so that we can really go deep into relationship, really go deep in having a place where we can know and be known, love and be loved, share meals, share our life deeply with one another. And so for me, this is um, something I'm excited about, something I've tasted of before and I'm excited to invite you into. So the plan is starting two weeks from today on Sunday, June 28th, we're going to be rolling out our living Room Liturgy. We'll be launching a brand new sermon series uh, that Sunday and inviting you to consider getting involved in a house church, um, at least for uh, the duration of the summer. So here's how to get involved. There's three ways. First is real simple. Um, call a friend or two. Get together with another family or a couple other couples or a group of friends within the church and say, hey, let's start a house church together. It can be just you and another family or a group of friends, whatever, 10, 15 people. And uh, all you need to do is shoot a friend a text and start a house church. And our staff and pastors will help you from there, get resourced and equipped uh, for how to use your time together. So that's option one. Just get some friends together and, uh, and call it good. The second option is for those that uh, would like to join a house church or would be open to hosting a house church in their home and are open to being connected with people that they may not know yet. Um, and if that's you, we would love to connect with you. You can go to our website and there'll be options, a button to click on that says join a house church or host a house church. And uh, you can click either one of those and that will put you in touch uh, with our pastoral team that will then kind of help facilitate and make connections between those that are looking to get involved and those that are opening up their homes. And uh, the third option is that if you're unable or uncomfortable um, with the idea of gathering together again, even with a small group, we want to honor that. And especially those that for health or safety reasons, um, it's just not time yet for you to uh, have people in your home or be in other homes. We get it and that's no problem. And so we want to invite you to continue participating in our living room liturgy uh, from your own home e each week as long as necessary. So so um, June 28th, new sermon series, new digital format, new network of house churches, and you can reach out to us with uh, any questions you may have, but we'll be in contact with you in the coming weeks to start helping uh, fill in some of the details. But I'm stoked, and I think it's uh, going to be an exciting opportunity where our goal isn't just to get back to the way things used to be or back to normal. Our goal is to come back strong.
And our goal is to see what it is that Jesus might be wanting to do in us and through us as a church uh, that wouldn't have happened otherwise because of this pandemic and other things that are happening in the world. So I hope you'll join me in that. Um, For today, we are continuing on week two of a three-week series that we're calling Dear White People. And uh, last week, as we launched it with our friend Jer Swigart, we've had a week full of lively conversations, to say the least. And uh, like I said in the email that went out last night, would you please stay with us and not check out, even if this is frustrating or confusing or challenging in one way or another, um, I really am asking you to trust me because there is a conversation here that's worth staying engaged in and paying attention uh, to what God might have for us in this moment. Um, Today we're going to be joined by my friend Elena Aronson from uh, Richmond, Virginia, and she has been immersed in the work of serving the church through training Christians in the areas of cross-cultural engagement, biblical reconciliation, uh, racial identity, and spiritual formation. Um, Specifically, she's been working on a book about white supremacy and how it not only negatively impacts people of color, but also white people as well. And so she's going to help us as a predominantly white church that's relatively new to this conversation. Um, And specifically for those of us that are going, all all I'm feeling right now is a bunch of guilt and shame, and it feels like you just want me to feel bad for being white. That's clearly not what we're going for. And so Elena is going to help us uh, forward in some of those conversations. And so I'm so glad, Antioch, that you've tuned in with us today. And uh, I'm excited about the conversation we're going to have in just a few minutes. Um, Before we dive into the conversation, we're going to open in prayer. And uh, Rick Gerhardt, the chair of our elder team, is going to lead us in a prayers of the people live from his basement in Madras. So let's uh, join Rick in prayer. Sisters and brothers, will you pray with me? Lord God, for so much of what is good and beautiful and just in our world, our country, our churches, our families, and ourselves, we give you thanks and all the praise and glory. For so much of what is broken and ugly and unjust in our world, our country, our churches, our families, and ourselves, we beg your forgiveness, we lament, and we repent. This morning, we rejoice with Caleb and Nicole Riley in the birth of their daughter, Bryn. At the same time, we pray for your healing touch upon this baby girl for strength and patience for her parents as they navigate the difficult time of her continued hospitalization, and for wisdom and guidance for the doctors trying to diagnose and correct her ailments. Creator and sustainer of all things, we thank you for the Sabbath-like healing of the lands and air, the rivers and seas that we are witnessing due to the decreased human activity caused by this novel coronavirus. We continue to ask for your mercy upon us, for healing and protection from the virus, for immunity, a cure, and a vaccine. But we also ask that when this pandemic is passed, you will guide us to a greater respect for the rest of creation, not only for our own sake, but for the flourishing and reconciliation of all created things according to your purposes. This week, dear Savior and Redeemer, we ask your special blessing upon our youth as many are graduating from schools and colleges without the usual celebratory gathering of their classmates and families and friends. 
Give them hope for a better tomorrow in a world in which you are still at work bringing about healing and reconciliation. We especially desire your very real presence among Antioch's middle school, high school, and young adult ministry groups. Please guide, strengthen, and refresh Jarrell and Brian and the many others that you have called to lead and walk alongside our youth and their unchurched friends. May your love and mercy, Lord, be clearly and powerfully revealed to the young people of Central Oregon through the youth ministry you have established here. Lord Jesus, you have clearly taught us that our love for you is revealed by our love for our neighbors and have shown us that our neighbor is everyone else with whom we share your creation. You have made us ambassadors of your kingdom and called us to be participants in your ongoing work of reconciliation. When you walked among us, you demonstrated your love for the least of these, those without access to the benefits of wealth and power and prestige within the broken systems of this world. Rather than follow your example, we have used our time and money and influence and votes with our own interests in mind, not those of our neighbors. We are sorry and desire to turn away from our selfishness. Forgive us, we implore you, for our complicity in the unjust systems that have oppressed and continue to persecute women and people of color, as well as the elderly and the unborn. We ask today that you would bring great blessing and healing and wholeness to people around the world, in our country, and in our own state and communities, who have until this time experienced injustice based on the color of their skin, their gender, their heritage, their religion, or their socioeconomic status. And if you will forgive us, please guide us by the power of your Holy Spirit to be your agents of change and reconciliation and love in the world that you are redeeming. Lord, make us new as we seek your will for our world in these important times. Lord God, creator of all things, God of Israel, true and living God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, hear our prayers. Amen. Well, thank you so much, Rick. Um, today, as we continue our conversation about race and reconciliation, I'm excited to have our guest speaker, Elena Aronson with us. Elena is an educator, a curriculum writer, an accomplished musician, and she serves as the program director for an organization called Erebon that exists to equip Christian leaders and communities with the resources for effectively engaging in the work of reconciliation, which that word is going to be used multiple times today. Um, as you know, before we get to Elena, I want to reiterate that this is the vision that God has given our church to join Jesus in the reconciliation of all things. And it's a phrase that comes from Colossians chapter one, where Paul is talking about uh, the glory of the name of Jesus. And he says that the reason that Jesus came and lived and died and rose again was so that in everything Christ might have the supremacy. The word Paul uses is supremacy. In the new world that God is making, Jesus sits on the throne and reigns supreme over all creation. And so what we said last week, and I want to say again, is that if the gospel of Jesus is primarily about the supremacy of Christ, then white supremacy is a false gospel. It is counter to the kingdom of God. 
And I don't know about you, but I don't want any part of my life to be in opposition to Christ. We believe that the church should be the one place in all of creation where the lordship of Jesus is unopposed. So even though it's hard and messy and controversial, that's why we're pursuing uh, and continuing this conversation today. So Elena, thanks so much for being with us live from Virginia. Uh, you're a graduate of Kilns College, which is where we first met a few years ago. And uh, we went on the same trip to Italy and Germany, the Renaissance and Reformation trip. And uh, you've been living in this space of training Christians about white supremacy, what it is, why we should care about it uh, for several years now. So tell us a little more about yourself and, and your work in this area. Well, good morning, and thanks so much for having me. I am honored by this opportunity and thankful that the pandemic, if for one thing that it's given us, is just the ability to do some more things from farther distances. Mm -hmm. So thanks for having me all the way from Richmond, Virginia. I, you did a great introduction. I feel like I don't need that, to say that much about Erebon anymore, but I've been working with Erebon for about six years. And we do try to equip the church to better practice um, reconciliation with cultural intelligence. I think it's helpful um, to say what Airbon means. A lot of people say, do you work with a makeup company? I do not, it's not Arbon. And um, Airbon is actually a Greek word that means a foretaste of things to come. It's used several times in the New Testament to talk about the Holy Spirit as a foretaste of God's presence. And we've kind of, uh, we were inspired by that and tried to use it to say like the church should be a foretaste of the kingdom of God. But unfortunately, a lot of the time we don't paint a great picture of what the kingdom of God will look like. And so we want to equip the church to do that better. Mm. And I'm just really grateful to be working with this organization. Um, I was an intern with the organization beforehand through our Urban Doxology songwriting internship. And now I am the um, program director of that internship. And I the music it. you guys started with this morning came out of that internship as well. That's right. And so we had Urban Doxology here at Antioch with us a couple years ago. They came and led worship. They've been involved in the Justice Conference and various things uh, we're connected to over the years. Uh, next week, your coworker David Bailey will be here with us. And uh, so we're really, really grateful for the relationship we've had with you guys over the years and grateful for your time with us today. So uh, let's dive right in. What is this thing called white supremacy and why should we as Christians care about it? That's a great question because growing up, I really didn't use, hear those words used except for talking about like the KKK. And that felt really extreme and obviously like something I didn't want to have anything to do with. And so I think all of us probably hear those words white supremacy and want to have nothing to do with it. And it's important what, that we know what we're actually talking about and why we keep bringing up these words for ourselves, because it can feel kind of scary and emotionally charged. Um, and at Erebon, we like to define white supremacy as a spiritual principality that was manifested economically, legislated politically, and that affects us relationally. People usually want to hear that a second time. So I'll say it one more time. Uh, white supremacy is a spiritual principality that was manifested economically, legislated politically, and that affects us relationally. Mm. If we see it in these terms, we realize it's not just a way of thinking. 
Uh, it's not just something that says like, I should treat other people in a nice and kind way. It's not just something that happened in the past in terms of our economics, like slavery um, or political legislation. It's all of those things. And it's things that happened a long time ago. It's things that are still happening right now. There's a whole legacy of it. But most importantly, I think we need to realize it's a spiritual principality. And Paul says, we don't fight against flesh and blood, but against um, spiritual powers and principalities um, that are like cosmic forces in our universe. And we like to say that this is one of those. This is an evil principality that all of us should be opposed to. And I think if we can see it in this way, it takes off the pressure from saying, do I have to dislike or hate these people? Are there certain people that are my enemies? Am I an enemy? Um, more so, we're saying there is this ideology, there's this, prince, this principality that is an enemy that we should all actively be fighting against. And like you said, we should care about this as Christians because uh, it, it's clearly something that puts um, supremacy outside of Jesus. But also white supremacy says, we're going to honor the image of God in one group of people, and we're going to pretend that it's not there. We're going to diminish it in another group of people. And that is, the Imago Dei is the foundational aspect of our faith. If we can't keep that as the foundation, then this is clearly a Christian issue. Wow. That is so helpful. Um, we live, I think you've, you've been to Bend, Oregon a couple times, right? Yep. And uh, so you know that it is a, uh, a largely white community, Central Oregon in general. And so it's always a little awkward for us to talk about issues related to race and that sort of thing, because we just kind of feel like it's really not our conversation. If there were more people of color here, then maybe it would make more sense to talk about it. But especially bringing up something like this, there's just, you know, it's just not, it's not our problem, so to speak. Um, but you've been working on a book on how white supremacy um, not only negatively impacts communities of color, but it also negatively impacts white people. So can tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that. Um, maybe a little bit of your story too on how you came to kind of care and teach about this topic. Yeah, I think it's, it's helpful to just name what your context is because it is easy to say, and we, we've, many of us have grown up with the idea that if we can say that we're colorblind, that we don't recognize difference, that we treat everyone the same, that that's a good and a positive thing. And while it is good to treat people equitably, it's just not realistic that we are blind to everything that is going on around us. In fact, that legacy has meant that we can acknowledge the diversity that God created and in its beauty, we have to act like everything is the same. And it also means that we have a hard time recognizing injustice and brokenness when it's there. And so I just want to acknowledge that first because when we're in a majority white place, starting to acknowledge these things feels like going backwards and taking away the unity that we thought was already present. But in fact, that unity wasn't based on anything. And we need to create a stronger and deeper sense of unity that's, I think we can form it in that collective fight against white supremacy. So I'm gonna explain like why white supremacy should be concerning to all of us. But I wanna start with that understanding of we can be unified in this, even if it feels divisive at first. Mm. 
So this book that I'm working on right now is about how America's racial history and our participation in that legacy as white people is robbing us of our humanity. That's my, it sounds extreme, but I would say we've been malformed by a society that's formed around white supremacy and we need healing, we need deliverance from that. And most significantly, like we need a process that will help us participate in our own healing and transformation so that we can meaningly participate in the larger work of restoration, which God has commissioned us with. Because I would argue if we're not um, being healed from this, um, this legacy that has malformed us, we're not able to, to understand God very well. We're not under, able to actually live out a Christian witness well. We're not able to experience what I'd call the freedom of salvation. And those feel like things that I want. Um, but unfortunately, we often just think of white supremacy as something that has affected people of color. And obviously, it's easy to name that and say, well, there's these terrible things that have happened in our history. There's slavery. There's um, really terrible immigration policies that have affected people. There's all types of different things that have affected people of color in really negative ways. And I think we can often speak against those in history and say that was a bad thing that happened. Um, but it's harder for us to see how this has negatively impacted us. Because, in fact, our whole narrative around it is saying, White supremacy has benefited us. It's privileged us. It's given us this like exalted status. And those words have gained a negative connotation that makes us feel shame and guilt in these conversations, but we still don't understand, um, I think, how they have negatively impacted us to be at a different place and be overly exalted. Uh, that's actually a whole different issue. So in this book, I'm talking about how oppression has not only dehuman, like been an action of dehumaniz dehumanization against the marginalized, but that if we have even implicitly participated in that, in the dehumanization of others, that's had to crack something in us. That it's actually possibly more like harming to the Imago Dei and, and ourselves to be participating in this instead of to be receiving it. Because if you receive um, violence and oppression, you have a choice to say, that's actually not what I'm going to form my identity around. I'm going to form my identity in uh, opposition to white supremacy. I'm going to say that I'm still valuable and I'm still good and I'm still made in the image of God, despite what the world is doing. But when we participate in that, we have completely bought into some kind of message that says we're better than other people. Other people are less than. And that shows some deep level of brokenness. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Antioch, I hope you're paying close attention here. Atlanta's taking us to school right now, and this is so helpful. Um, this, this idea I first became familiar with through uh, Wendell Berry's work, believe mm. it or not. And I know, Atlanta, you're familiar too, but he has a book called The Hidden Wound, and he's yeah. talking specifically about uh, Southern slavery and how, of course, the system of slavery was bad uh, for the slaves, but he also makes the argument that it was also is also bad for slave owners, mm -hmm. right? And how deeply our souls are wounded by being parts of being a part of a system that's oppressive or violent to other humans. I mean, to use kind of an extreme example, if I were to hit a kid and kill them in my car and then have to live with myself. Right. Like 
that's, I, I can't even imagine living with that kind of guilt to that kind of shame or something like that. But to a certain extent, as those that have participated in, benefited from system of, of whiteness, um, we do live with, with some, of, some of those same things to a certain extent. And so I think that's where a lot of us find ourselves re relatively new to this conversation um, as white people. And we come here feeling like, okay, now I just, you just want me to feel guilty for being white. I didn't choose this, um, which we could just pause for a moment and say, um, maybe we're just starting to get a small taste of the consequences of skin color. <laughs> um, we don't usually think about that at all, but but help us think a little bit more about that, Elena. Like you seem to think that this isn't just about shaming white people and making us feel hopeless about our identity, but you actually think that the call to see and to engage white supremacy is could be freeing and ultimately good news for us as white people. So why is that? I do. I strongly believe that. And I also strongly believe we need to understand the difference between guilt and shame. Shame says, is an identity statement, and it says, I am bad because of whatever. And we might, during this time, say, I am bad because I'm white. That is a shame statement. It is not helpful. Shame statements get us crippled and stuck, and we go towards denial and weird coping mechanisms. We don't need that. Guilt instead says, I've done something bad. I've seen something bad. I've been a part of something bad. And that is can be helpful because it moves us in a direction of ownership, which asks us like, well, what should we do about it? And so feeling those feelings of guilt is not necessarily a bad thing because it just says, well, we're seeing reality. We're taking ownership of our, uh, our relationship with what's been going on and we can do something to heal that. Hmm. And when we talk about woundedness, I think we, I love the book, The Hidden Wound. Um, Wendell Berry really hits at something important there. Because when we talk about woundedness, there's a wound that's been given to us and sometimes wounds that we have inflicted on ourselves. With an issue like this, we've got both of them. And I love this quote by Wendell Berry in that book. He says, for whatever reasons, good or bad, I've been unwilling until now to open in myself what I have known all along to be a wound a historical wound prepared centuries ago to come alive in me at my birth like a hereditary disease and to be augmented and deepened by my life. And I love that he says, even when I was born, it was here. It was ready to be opened. And then there's things within his life that have contributed to that. And that's true for all of us, but we just have to learn and recognize how that's shown up. I think another helpful way to see it is David Bailey, who's talking next week. He, is, he loves metaphors. And sometimes they are weird, and sometimes they have a stroke of genius. <laughs> and this one I thought was kind of genius. He said, it's easy to see the pain of the poor and the marginalized because it shows itself as blood on the streets. In contrast, the pain of the wealthy looks like internal bleeding. Too often it goes unnoticed until it's too late. Mm. And I think that the wound of racism follows this pattern. It's easy to see how it's affected marginalized communities um, or poor communities, but it's very difficult to see how um, those of us who have been more well-to-do, who have had more privilege, have been wounded. And we've been trained to actually ignore the signs rather than to recognize them. Mm. 
Just because we're oblivious to it, though, does not mean that we're okay. It probably means the opposite and that there's something that's coming that's going to lead to more death and destruction mm. that we're just unaware of. Mm. And so I think it's really difficult, though, to actually get connected to this sense of woundedness. Like, I'll admit, I haven't felt particularly wounded for most of my life. Like, growing up in the church, I learned how to acknowledge sin, of course. And we had, you know, times that you'd confess your sin and how you weren't living quite right. But um, I had, a like, a aha moment in college when one of my theology professors said, Sin is lamentable, but not surprising. And he talked about if we really have a biblical understanding of sin, we shouldn't be surprised that it's not only affected our minds, or our relationships, but also the systems and structures that surround us. Thinking otherwise actually indicates a reduced view of sin. And I started naming, like, what are some ways that I've seen the sin of racism affect myself and some of the wounds that it's created? So I said, like, I've seen how it's malformed my sense of identity by giving me an inflated sense of self and ability. I've seen it affect my relationships by making it difficult for friends of color to trust me and easier for me to hurt others, whether out of ignorance or by pursuing self-interest. I've seen it distort my spirituality by impairing my ability to recognize who God is and how God is at work in the world. I've seen it impact my work by giving me opportunities I didn't earn and tampering with the results of well-intended actions. I've seen it harm my communities, creating educational, socioeconomic, and vocational disparities among different people. And so I think it's helpful to name those things. Um, it is only by naming the wound of racism that we can get started and, uh, and recognize how we are in need of God's healing and deliverance. Wow. That is so helpful. Um, I think for a lot of us, the idea of confessing sin, we're comfortable with at a personal level. Mm -hmm. um, but the idea of confessing corporate or collective sin um, mm -hmm. feels harder. And But to me, even in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus invites us to pray prayers of confession in the plural. Can forgive us our sins. So it's not just saying the sins that I have personally, knowingly, intentionally committed, um, but on behalf of us, whoever that may be, us as the church, us as the historic uh, people of God, or even us as humanity. Um, and Jesus not only commands that, but he models that in the prayer itself, right? He who knew no sin. Um, is confessing sin on behalf uh, of his people that he loves. And so that's, I think, a helpful thing for us as we start understanding that there are, there are sins to be confessed that we are connected to, complicit in, benefited from. And um, when the question is, well, what should I do um, about whiteness or racial injustice or something like that, I think one of the first steps Jesus gives us is confess, right? To name and to repent. And so um, help us think more in terms of how, uh, how have you found the teachings of Jesus and, and any specific scriptures or biblical narratives that could help uh, inform the way we think about this? Yes, I have found like these two stories that I think complement each other. 
and really paint a picture for both what it could look like for us not to respond and what it looks like for us to respond in a like healthy and productive way. And um, those are the stories of the rich young ruler. And I'll tell you the other one in a moment. Um, so the rich young ruler, I think we're all familiar with that story. It's significant enough to be in all the gospels except for John. And in this familiar story, a rich young man goes to Jesus, asks what he needs to do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus recounts the Ten Commandments, and the young man's like, great, I've done all of those. And uh, then after all of that, when he's like, I'm killing it at being righteous, Jesus says, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. The rich young man is not happy. He's sad. He's like, that's not what I want to do. Why would Jesus ask this of me? And he turns away. Now, I remember hearing this story mostly around the conversation of like, if I'm rich, do I have to give up all my possessions to enter the kingdom of God? Because Jesus says afterwards, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And so it becomes a story about like, well, how far do I actually have to go? I don't think that's unhelpful of a conversation, but I don't think that's actually where the most helpful conversation to get stuck on. And I think we should look at it in a different way because the rich young ruler, he, first of all, he doesn't give us a lot of hope for those who come from a similar socioeconomic position. And I think we need to see him in a different way. We need to see the rich young ruler as someone who did not recognize his woundedness. Now, that might feel like a, a long shot, but let me explain. He was focused solely on his relationship with God and the benefits he could receive from God. And I think like many of us, he was probably unaware of how particulars of his identity affected the way that he understood scripture and how he received Jesus's invitation. So in other words, I'd say he was blind to the way that his social status impacted his theology and how he lived out his theology. And so Jesus interacts with him and he tries to connect his faith that's obviously pretty strong and informed with his embodied identity. And the rich young man is just confused and disheartened because all he hears is Jesus saying, do this major sacrifice. But he's totally unaware of the opportunity for healing and liberation that Jesus is offering as a result. I think similarly, we as white people can enter these conversations and say, for me to interact with this is asking for a huge sacrifice because this does not affect me. But in fact, what if Jesus is offering us a pathway to our own healing and liberation? So I think that the rich young ruler did not recognize this. And so instead of us asking, do rich people have to give up all their belongings? We should be asking, why doesn't the rich young man recognize Jesus's invitation as good news? Does that make sense? Yeah, that's great. So my answer is that he doesn't, he misses it because he's unaware of his woundedness and the, we can only do that spiritual work through the power of the Holy Spirit. But because he looked to Jesus for approval rather than for salvation, he was not able to participate with God in addressing his woundedness and experiencing the true freedom of salvation. Mm. So that should serve as a good warning and indictment, but it does not give us a lot of vision. Now, the story that I think is helpful for us features a short tree-climbing tax collector named Zacchaeus. So Zacchaeus is also wealthy, like the rich young ruler, but he, um, 
he gained his wealth clearly through oppressive means. Nobody liked him. Everybody, uh, he, was, he was privileged but marginalized at the same time. And where you get that is, from that is like Zacchaeus is aware of his woundedness because he inhabits like an uncomfortable place in society. And when he goes and finds out about Jesus coming to town, he's, he's like, I don't, I'm not very popular. I don't want to stand out. I'm going to climb up in this tree and see what I can see. And um, Jesus happens to notice him and says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to stay at your house today. And Zacchaeus joyfully welcomes him. The townspeople then grumble saying, He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. And Zacchaeus immediately looks to Jesus and says, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. That part is not in the children's song, but I think it's really important. And Jesus responds back to Zacchaeus and the townspeople saying, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. So I think this is such a different response. He not only accepts a personal invitation from Jesus, which I think he could have used to distract himself from his sinful actions by saying, oh, Jesus loves me anyway. I'm worthy because Jesus invited me. But instead, he responds with repentance and acts of reparation that result in salvation. And I'd say the very same salvation that Jesus was offering to the rich young ruler. So Zacchaeus, by recognizing his woundedness, he can respond with humility, receives Jesus' invitation as an opportunity for healing and liberation, and that affects his relationship with God and with his neighbors. And Jesus doesn't even ask that of him. So I think we should be asking, on the flip side, why is Zacchaeus able to respond this way? How is it that he's so easily able to accept the freedom of salvation? And I would say it's because he recognizes his woundedness. Wow. That is so good. Good lessons from the wee little man. The wee little man is, uh, he's a little more profound than we realize. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So I love this idea of learning to recognize our own woundedness. I think the internal bleeding is a great metaphor. Um, and as we start becoming aware of that, and that's something that may be happening for some of us right now, like in this conversation, we're going, man, I'm, it's, is it possible that I'm wounded and bleeding in ways that I had no idea? Um, what, what do we do with that? Uh, what do you think God wants to do with that? And is that even the right question to be asking in the moment where, um, you know, to put it bluntly, people are dying, right? Um, should I be paying attention to my own process and story and healing and all that? Or um, how, how do we think about, the healing of our own souls and the healing of the world at the same time? Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. And I think one that we should be asking when we try and take action is saying, is this more, uh, is this an abstraction and a, like, is this going to turn people away from paying attention to the, the pain of another community or is it helping move towards it? And, uh, a lot of the time it's uncomfortable for us to think about paying any attention towards ourselves in these issues because we want to solve that clear injustice that's happening. And so the, the recent circumstances around police brutality and violence against African-American people have been clearly things like we think those are bad and they need to stop. 
it's very uncomfortable to say, um, what's my relationship with those things? And so I think recognizing our woundedness is not about saying my, I'm more important than these other issues. It's saying I'm a part of them. And until I take care of myself and my relationship with them, I cannot expect them to stop happening because these are not just a product of those crazy racist people that are out there. This is a pro product that I'm a part of and I have to be part of dismantling it. And so we're dismantling um, a mindset and a way of living. Um, and we do that alongside the press and the marginalized who are asking and demanding justice. And we have to be part of that justice work. And part of that is doing our own internal work. So these things are meant to go side by side and not be um, mutually exclusive. Oh. Um, hopefully that makes sense. And I, I like to think about it as um, when the Egyptian, when the Israelites were freed from Egypt, they were being freed from a physical condition, first and foremost. They were in slavery, and then they go into the wilderness to go towards the promised land. But while they're in the promised land, it is clear that they have not been freed by, from the empire mindset that they got in Egypt. They keep saying, oh, it would be better to be back in Egypt. At least I had food to eat, different things like that. They were out of their physical bondage, but still mentally bound mm. to the empire. We have to do that work of mental liberation. We're in the wilderness, and we cannot fully enter the promised land until we've done the work. So that is what this process is about. Wow. So good. Well, last question, Elena. We're going to close with another song by Urban Doxology, which is a group that you uh, work with. And um, this is a song they released uh, fairly recently um, called uh, God Not Guns. Mm -hmm. And um, But as we get ready to go to it, I want to just ask you about the greater connection between what we might call worship and justice. Um, so we've kind of dealt with the process of our own personal wounds. Um, mm -hmm. But even when it comes to the people of God, the church, there may be some that's like, why are we spending all this time on controversial social issues? Shouldn't we just be praying and worshiping and seeking God through scripture and that sort of thing? Um, but we don't see those as disconnected from one another, right? Loving God and loving others uh, go hand in hand. So um, tell us a little bit about kind of worship and justice in general and then about this, this song that we're going to close with. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I love that we opened with Isaiah 58, which I think is one of the most amazing passages for just seeing the connection between justice and worship. Because in that passage, the Israelites are doing all of their normal religious practices. I mean, there, there's phrases like they were bending their heads like reeds blowing in the wind, dressed in clothes for mourning. Like they were doing these hyper-spiritual practices, but God's like, that is basically trash to me. I don't, like, I am offended by this because at the same time, you are ignoring the needs of the marginalized in the community. You are actively ignoring or part of them. And you need to do justice, this worship. That's the kind of offering that I desire. And we forget that justice not only is an act of worship when we do those actions, but justice is also a characteristic and attribute of God. And I think in worship, we're, we're very familiar with singing songs that praise God for who God is. Why don't we do that 
for God's nature as someone, uh, as a being that is just. This is something we should worship God about. And God is promising a kingdom that is marked by certain characteristics. We should worship with uh, a desire to see that kingdom made more present. And so I think these, these topics actually go perfectly into worship, both in our expression and our singing, but also in the actions that we do as worship and righteousness throughout the week. And the song that we're going to listen to, it's called God Not Guns, and it was written through our songwriting internship, um, actually written several years ago after a few different circumstances of police brutality. And one of our interns who um, identifies as an uh, indigenous American, he wrote it out of some experiences that he had had uh, within his family, losing a, a family member to uh, at a police traffic stop. And um, this song just talks about what the, the lyrics say in the chorus, we want to raise our hands to God and not to guns. We want to flee to safety when we run. Keep us safe, Lord, make a way. Keep us safe, you are a place to hide. And this song is just about how God is the one that brings justice and salvation and safety. And it's a song that we sing when we're recognizing those things are not fully present yet. Um, you might be thinking, as a white person, I, this chorus doesn't really relate to me. What does it mean for me to sing this? And I would say we sing it in solidarity with those who are um, also part of the church that are experiencing this type of pain. And we also sing it um, as an expression of lament, saying this is what our world looks like right now, and we know that's not what the kingdom looks like. Mm. So I would invite you into that as we sing this song. So great. Elena, thank you so much for being with us this morning. And uh, what a gift you and your work are to the church. And uh, really, really grateful for you taking the time to pour into our community. Um, if people want to stay in touch with you or follow your, your work, is there a good, good way to do that? Yeah. Um, I... Well, follow us at Arabon for one. We do new videos every Thursday called Thoughtful Thursday videos that we just answer some simple questions that people have about race and faith and reconciliation. So there's plenty of those on our YouTube channel at Arabon. And then um, people can follow me uh, on Instagram or Facebook. Um, I'm not always the best at social media, but I'm EJ Aronson 42. Awesome. I should change that name. <laughs> it doesn't matter <laughs> well thank you again so much and uh we uh, look forward to seeing you soon thanks so much we're gonna close uh with this song by urban doxology love you antioch go in peace let's get right to some live pictures chopper five coming in this is over a shooting scene on the 1600 block of Chance Avenue is happening with the Do you see power poisonous? Greed controlling us. Do you see it? We want to raise our hands to God and not to God. 
place to hide.